If you've ever been interested in donor conception and you've had questions swirling around in your mind, I think this is the episode for you because there are so many questions that people have and that I've had about donor conception that I don't always hear the answers for. Like, for example, what is it like for the donor? What is it like, particularly for an embryo donor who is passing on her full genetics, the genetics of her children, her existing children, to somebody else? What is it like to have a relationship with your recipient? What do the children call each other? What do you call the child? And all kinds of things like that. It's really interesting to hear. And you will hear that in this episode. I am interviewing Jen Vispin. And she was on the show before with her group, Empower with Moxie. Empower with Moxie is an embryo donation group, which you need to check out. They're fantastic. But she is one of the members, and she has this incredible story about how she became an embryo donor herself. So check it out. I think you'll really like it. Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast created exclusively for people who are planning to use donor conception to build their family or for people who have already built their family with donor conception. I'm your host. My name is Lisa Schumann. I'm a researcher, a therapist, and an expert in donor conception. And over my more than two decades of experience working both in fertility clinics and in my private practice, the Center for Family Building, I've met with thousands of donor-conceived individuals, children, recipients, and donors. And I have learned so much, and I'm here to teach you all that I've learned in this podcast. My guests and I will talk about everything that you need to know to have a better journey to parenthood. If it's about donor conception, we're going to talk about it. And I am here to introduce you to our next guest. This is Jen Vespin, and she is a fantastic woman. You might recognize her because she is part of the Moxie group that was on earlier, and they are fantastic. And Power with Moxie is an amazing group. It's an embryo donation group, and she will tell you a lot about it. And they do wonderful, wonderful things. She today, however, is on to talk about her particular personal journey, which is very different than maybe some of the journeys you've heard before. She donated her embryo. So I'm going to let her talk a little bit more about her experience and how she's experienced this and experienced the idea of donation and growing with Empower with Moxie. So hi, Jen. So good to have you back. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. I love telling my embryo donation story. Well, thank you for coming and thank you for sharing. And I really, uh, as I told you before, I've never had anyone back on the show, but your particular story, and I know the other women in the group are um, have wonderful stories too, but your particular story is, I think, really, really fascinating and will be really amazing for the listeners to hear because it's not something that you hear a lot about. So you were an embryo donor. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe your fertility history because you had a fertility history before you donated and maybe how you kind of led up to that? Yes, absolutely. And I think that that's one thing that all embryo donors have in common is there's some history that led them to having remaining frozen embryos. So in my case, I was married and did the typical thing where we waited a couple of years after marriage and then thought, okay, we're ready to have babies. 
At the time, I was in my 30s, and so we had to wait about a year before uh, we could get any additional help. So we tried for quite a while, and they said, okay, try a full year, and then you can see a fertility specialist. So after we did that and nothing happened, um, we were diagnosed with male factor infertility, which is something that is, I feel like is sometimes less talked about in the industry. So I always like to mention the diagnosis, not that the diagnosis is always important, but just that often as females, when we are the ones that are going through the IVF and the treatment and the hormones and all of those things, we sort of identify ourselves as uh, being infertile. So my husband and I were diagnosed with male factor infertility. We tried all sorts of things other than IVF before IVF came around. Uh, we tried acupuncture, sort of all of the natural things. And then we finally realized that we really needed assistance to get pregnant. So at that time, we were living in Detroit. We went to a local clinic and they recommended going straight to IVF and in fact, hmm. ICSI to try to have a baby. So we did that. Um, we had our first round of IVF after everything was said and done. There were two viable embryos to transfer. I got pregnant with one and then I had a miscarriage. So as many of your audience members probably know, miscarriage is difficult. Miscarriage after IVF and all of the, you know, emotional resources and financial resources that are put into it is devastating. Devastating. Absolutely. And so I thought, I didn't know if I had it in me to go through it again, but we did. We had moved from Detroit to Portland, Oregon, where I currently live, and we decided to give it another shot. And the second time we went through IVF, we ended up with three viable embryos. They wow. transferred two. This is back in the day when they still transferred two. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It was um, 2011. And uh, both took, and I got pregnant with twins, and they froze the one remaining embryo. So that is my fertility history. Wow. And so then what happened next? I had a great twin pregnancy. I'm very fortunate. I gave birth to twins in uh, February of 2012. It was a beautiful yet difficult time as a twin mama. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when you have frozen embryos, or in my case, a frozen embryo, you get an annual storage bill and they give you the options of what you want to do. Now, in my case, I don't recall filling out any paperwork at the clinic prior to IVF stating a disposition option. And most people don't, right? Right. I was so desperate to be a mom. Like it, it doesn't even yeah. register. I had no it's idea. A blur. And I think, yeah, I don't know. But the point is, is that after the fact, then you really start thinking about it after you have children. And again, in my case, it was unique because there was only one embryo yet, you know, I was still paying the annual storage bill right. and this one embryo really weighed on me. The first couple of years were a no brainer to continue to pay for storage because obviously, you know, young newborn twins, toddler twins, there wasn't any space at that time in our lives <laughs> to get pregnant again or have another child. Mm -hmm. But around the time that the twins turned four, that storage bill became more and more significant and more and more of a conversation 
in my relationship and marriage in terms of what to do with the embryo. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I think that because there was only one, I felt very attached to what would happen to this embryo. Everybody has a different journey. Some people end up with, you know, 12, 16, even 20 frozen embryos. Um, I had one. And so honestly, I felt very attached to it and I felt very Mm -hmm. attached to the outcome. Can I ask you a question about that, Jen? I'm wondering because I hear different, and and I certainly appreciate what you're saying is that if you have a lot of embryos, it may be that you have a lot of embryos and so it feels more like this big number to you rather than it being kind of more personal, this one embryo. But I also, even when there's just one embryo sometimes, or many, sometimes hear people say, you know, I was so scientific-minded and I kind of looked at these embryos as a bunch of cells that would have the potential of becoming a, a child at some point. But of course, you know, embryos can be lots of things and sometimes they don't result in children. And they have very often have this very scientific mind about it. And then all of a sudden I see my children and I start looking at this thinking, you know, in my mind, looking at this embryo thinking, oh my gosh, this could be a brother or sister for my children. And it takes on this whole different meaning. Did that happen to you? Yeah, absolutely. And I do think it happens to a lot of people where they think that they know what they want mm-hmm. and then they have a child or children yeah. and then they begin to think about embryos as full genetic siblings to their children, whether they are raised in their own home or another home. So for me, particularly, I felt this connection because there was only one, but that is not to say that you can't feel that exact same connection if you have three or five Mm -hmm. or 10 embryos. And what I talk about a lot is being open to feelings changing over time. And that's why when I was mentioning, you know, I don't really remember filling out that disposition form. And even if I had, everything changes when you have children, you know, you just think of things differently. So it's absolutely, I think that that across the board is you're spot on that, that many people who have leftover embryos feel a connection they thought they may not, that surprised them, they thought they may not have felt. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I meet so many families who say, even if they don't say, I'm going to donate to science, sometimes they just say, we're discarding, we're discarding, we're discarding. There's nothing to think about. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they have these embryos, and then they put off, you know, as you're saying, sometimes put off making a decision because it's a tough decision all of a sudden, right? It's no longer, I'm just looking at this ball of cells. I'm looking at the potential of another child and I don't know what to do. So maybe I'll just pay the fees one more year and then one more year and then one more year. And we have hundreds of thousands of embryos frozen in this country for decades, right? As a result of that. Yes, exactly. And so many, I think there's been studies on this, but you know, it usually takes people around five years or more to make a decision. And so many people are in paralysis about this decision. Like they just don't know. So they'll continue to pay for storage, even sometimes indefinitely. And like you said, there's so many embryos and some of them, you know, are abandoned. Some of them are paid for indefinitely. And it's getting to the point where, you know, education and support around this is very important. Mm -hmm. As the years increase and as more and more people go through art for family building, 
you know, these conversations need to happen. And again, some on the front end, but also some on the back end so that when I receive my um, storage bill, I don't know, like I'm just sitting here reading, you know, Mm -hmm. you can do this, that, or the other, but having real support and education around what it means to donate to science. Are there, you know, what are the options out there? Mm -hmm. Um, And also many um, couples disagree on what to do with the embryos and, that's how it was in my case. You know, like I had mentioned earlier, about four years in is when we really started to look at this seriously and make a decision. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to try for another child or donate. And my husband at the time wanted to donate to science. So he was absolutely sure that he was done being a parent. And it's, like I said, twin, you know, Ends. I, you know, there were lots going on in our lives at the time. And so we landed on a happy medium, which was a donation. So I wasn't going to try for the child on my own. We weren't going to donate to science. We decided to do donation. And for me, the reason I chose to become an embryo donor is for me, it felt like giving back to somebody else that had been through some of the pain or emotions or, you know, trials that I had would give sort of purpose to what I had been through. Mm. And also just the idea of this new definition of family and being able to expand my mind outside of, you know, either I will try for this child on my own or we will donate to science or discard was very exciting to me. And so how did you reconcile, okay, well, I'm not going to have any more children myself, but somebody else is going to have this this child who's genetically linked to my child. How did you wrap your head around that? Well, I think, again, I think the first part was the decision. And then once the decision was made to donate, I say a lot of times, like, you make the best decision at the time with all the information you have. And then a new journey begins. And so I felt really good. I talked with a lot of friends about it. I talked with uh, a very good friend of mine who is adopted about, you know, what that felt like. And, you know, one of the things he said to me was, you know, if you're asking if this child might one day feel like, you know, misplaced or angry or whatever. What he said to me is, I did, but also all of my friends who were raised by genetic parents felt the same in their teenage years. So it just really like settled my mind because I think a lot of donors sometimes feel like, especially in a known donation, which is what I did, and we can get into that more. A lot of donors are thinking, you know, almost like I'm playing God. I am choosing you know, a future for this child or a life for this child or parents for this child. And again, it's not something that we talk about much or, you know, it's not something that I could go talk to a friend about. None of my friends had frozen embryos. Mm -hmm. None of my friends were donating, thinking about donation. So, you know, that's why I do what I do is because I know what it feels like to, you know, make these big decisions. Wow. But yeah, once I wrap my mind around it, I knew that I wanted to do donation in a known and open way. My clinic at the time did more what 
is formerly known as anonymous Mm -hmm. donations. They did non-directed unknown donations. And to me, that didn't feel like the right path for me. So I sort of went off on my own and found a recipient. And how did you find your recipient? So I wrote to my clinic Mm -hmm. and I said, I want to go ahead and do this on my own. And so they, you know, gave me a list of agencies out there that do this sort of thing. And so I found one, I posted a profile of, you know, my husband and I and our children and who we are and what we're into and what we love. Mm -hmm. And I got a lot of response. This was, you know, 2016. And I think now it's 2023. And sometimes I think, would anybody in 2023 want a single untested embryo? Because that's what we had Mm -hmm. to donate. At the time, we had a lot of interest. I sort of navigated that process on my own in terms of, you know, receiving interested recipients' emails and, you know, asking the question. My husband and I sat down and made a list of here's what we think is important to ask Mm -hmm. of a recipient. Again, we didn't know anybody else that had done it. And so we came up with our list. We sent it out. We got responses. And when I received the response from who is now my recipient and the mother of uh, my donated embryo, I'll never forget the moment that I read her response. I know exactly where I was standing Wow! in the kitchen. I read it and I just knew it's her. I'm going to choose her. She's a single mom by choice, which is why I'm saying her. And I almost just had this flash to the future where I knew it was going to be her. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to be a boy, even though, again, you know, this is an untested embryo. And I will, that is like one of the moments in my life I will never forget. That's incredible. You know, from there, it's like I write her an email and say, we choose you. And then we begin to navigate all of the logistics that come along with embryo donation. We were residing on the West Coast in Portland, Oregon. Mm -hmm. She lives in Manhattan on the East Coast. Wow. You know, there there were a lot of things to to work through from there. But, you know, like I said, I just knew that it was her. You felt like even though you wanted an open donation, she didn't have to be in close proximity to you. She didn't have to be somebody who lived in your area. You were comfortable living on a separate coast and all of that. Yes. In fact, that was better for me. Oh. When I work with embryo donors, we talk a lot about, you know, even in open donations, like, what are you really comfortable with? Do you want somebody who lives down the street from you that you might run into at the grocery store or your children might attend the same schools? Or it does a little bit of distance feel good to you? For me, this was absolutely ideal because there was a little bit of distance, but at the same time, she had family in my home state. And so when I read her profile, I knew that she would be traveling back here twice a year. So it was like... Perfect situation. Mm -hmm. Yes, for me. And again, you know, everybody is a little bit different in terms of proximity, what they want, how much communication they want. And we talked earlier in in the podcast about feelings changing over time, you know, once you have children and then consider embryo donation, I would say the same thing when it comes to donation, 
just know that feelings will change over time. It's great to have, you know, an ideal, I want this much contact on these days and I want, mm-hmm. you know, a phone call or an email or whatever. And that's one of the reasons I really appreciated my recipient is because we both sort of, you know, knew that we'd work it out as it went along. But the one thing that we agreed on is that once we decided on an amount of communication, we would not change that. Hmm. And we would do that because that would be in the best interest of the children. So even if, you know, it's hard for me to see him or it's hard for her, you know, sometimes to be around us, we both had the best interests of the children in mind, which is, you know, that's again, why it was a perfect match for me. So you you felt that on some level you wanted a type of relationship that you could live with. Of course, this is your embryo, but also at the same time, you're making decisions for the future children, right? And so you have to, you're considering all of these elements at the same time, right? And so they have to, this whole checklist, I guess you went through in your mind and maybe kind of even unconsciously went through it when you were looking at her profile thinking, okay, you know, she checks all the boxes for me. She wants to be open. She lives far away, but she visits. She's a lovely person. And she wants this commitment to a connection with the kids. So what about that? What did you guys say we want our kids to be? Because I know a lot of donor-conceived um, siblings find that it's hard to kind of struggle with how they feel about the language. Some say, I really feel like this person is a friend, but we're related. Some people say, I feel like we're more like cousins because we don't live in the same household, but we feel have this connection. And other ones feel, say, we feel like siblings. So how did you want to kind of create this, this uh, ideal circumstance for your families? That's such a great question. I felt as a donor that I should leave the language up to her to decide and bring up a great topic. And that is, what is the language that we use in these unique situations? And so at first, she, she felt very comfortable with cousin language and aunt and uncle language. So I was Aunt Jen and my children, you know, were cousins to them. However, and again, this is, I feel like the theme of the whole thing, feelings changing over time. Once I told my twins, and I should mention that my twins are exactly five years older than my recipient's son. So they got to sort of grasp the concept before him. Mm. And he is now about the age um, that they were when we donated. So there was this moment. So I told my twins about who he was. And the reason is, is because they asked me, so every time they came to town, you know, we got to go to his birthday party, we got to see him and we would call, you know, them cousins, but we don't necessarily use that language much in our family other than like if they're actually cousins. And so my son around the age of eight or so, he said, why do we call him our cousin? Because, you know, he's not our cousin in the same way, you know, X, Y, and Z are Mm -hmm, our cousin. mm -hmm. And there was this moment where we were at a birthday party for, you know, my recipient's son, and we had gifted her a photo collage of 
all of the children together. And so, you know, she's opening it. He's very young and she's explaining, you know, here's your cousins and your aunt and uncle. And at that time, I had already told the twins about, you know, who he truly was. And they understood it in the way that, you know, young people can understand IVF and frozen embryos and all of that. And my son whispered something to me and I couldn't exactly hear what he said. So I had him repeat it and he repeated it very loud in front of the whole birthday party. And he said, he's not my cousin. He's my brother. Wow. And this is in front of your entire family. And at that point, I realized, you know, again, adults can make decisions about what we call each other, but at some point we need to let the children decide what is comfortable for them. Mm -hmm. And so they consider him their brother. And it's, to me, one of the sweetest things that has come out of embryo donation is to really see how the children conceptualize it. And, you know, even though we only see each other twice a year, and that's on a good year because there were those COVID years where we didn't see each other, they feel such a connection oh. to him. So, I, you know, we'll see how, how how he feels in the future in terms of his connection. But my children, they feel like he's their brother. And when I took my daughter to get glasses and the doctor asked her, how many siblings do you have? She said two. Hmm. Um, she said, I have my twin and I have my embryo donated. Wow. That must have knocked the socks off the ophthalmologist. <laughs> oh, exactly. Yes. And I think so many times I just see wheels spinning, you know, mm-hmm. but I think again, this has become, will become more of our dialogue in terms of, you know, new definitions yes. of family and things like that. And I have to tell one more story yes, about please. my daughter. And that is that when she was in the third grade, it was the year of COVID. And so they did a lot of online homework. And so her very first project was, why does my family rock? Like, why is my family Mm -hmm. great? And her first thing was, my family rocks because I have a twin brother. And then she said, and my family rocks because I have another brother who was frozen in a drawer for four years (laughs) and my mom was too busy. (laughs) So she gave another mommy. So I immediately, I immediately had to write future. And just say, just so you know, I didn't feel. It's like a horror show. (laughs) Yes. So I had to explain, you know, to her teacher, this is the situation. And I think again, more and more as we redefine family, there's going to be, you know, a level where teachers are going to need to understand. Doctors are going to need to understand. There's so many people that will need to understand. And again, I've never stopped the twins from just expressing how they feel and sharing how they Mm -hmm. feel, whether or not person on the receiving end really understands. So that's a fantastic story. That's great. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) And I love that it's recorded Mm -hmm. and it's only recorded because it was COVID and everything was online, but it's, yeah, that it will be one of, again, moments I remember forever. Well, you know, we do, we are seeing so much and I had uh, Rosanna Hertz um, on the show where she's did research with lots of different donor siblings and how people define who they are to each other, if they feel more like cousins or friends and what happens over the course of their lives. And I think that that is, all those things are so important to think about. But I'm also wondering, and I think, you know, our viewers are really going to be interested in this idea that I think, you know, when you're starting, and as you know, you're starting this process of embarking on donor conception, 
very often the recipients start to feel worried about what's going to happen in the future. What is that relationship going to be like? Because they're not secure yet sometimes as parents, right? And so sometimes they worry about what's the relationship can be like with the donor. And later, of course, they, you know, all of those fears fade away, but they have some anxiety about that. And sometimes the donors have anxiety about the recipients and say, you know, I wonder if if that recipient is going to want me. And I've met many donors who have said to me, are you sure that the recipient's not going to ask me to parent the child? And so they both come to this circumstance before it's happened with these fears, and they both really can allay their fears because, of course, that never happens. But I'm wondering how you guys felt because you were, it's not like, and you know, and I've seen many people who donate to friends, you were in a similar situation in that you were strangers before you donated to this woman. And so you could have maybe had some concerns about that or anxieties about how you're going to feel with her as a mom or, you know, worries about the way this child's going to be raised or how you're going to feel about the child. So I guess, can we start with you and and then maybe kind of move on to your discussions with her? Yes, absolutely. There are very real feelings on both sides about how will I feel? Mm-hmm. Like, and there's anxiety about that. And the truth is, is that it's impossible to know exactly. And so much of the work I do is trying to normalize the feelings. So if you have a day where you feel jealous or as a donor, well, really on either side, but as a donor, you know, if you feel like jealous or a sense of loss, or if you have days where you feel so much joy about donation and that there's another human that is being loved by, you know, other people and, you know, no matter what, it's okay to feel that. The point is, is to talk about it and work through it. So for myself, I did go through times where I had feelings of jealousy. I wrote a blog piece back when I started a community for embryo donors about meeting him for the first time. Mm -hmm. So there were all sorts of fears. Will he feel like mine? Will he look like me or my husband or my children? How will I feel about the way that she parents him? Mm -hmm. The thing that I've been fortunate about is that both me and my recipient have been able to at least somewhat talk openly in both ways. Hmm. So I have my feeling she's simultaneously experiencing like, am I a good enough parent in front of them when we get together? Do they feel like they chose right? And one point she said to me, I haven't felt this insecure since high school. Wow. So we've been able to communicate that to each other, which is, you know, I feel like that's a very fortunate situation. And she too has, you know, read my blogs and watched me get up on stage and talk about my feelings and has been very graceful in understanding that, you know, our feelings have been complex. So I met him for the first time when he was around five to six months. And then within that same year, I, right before his first birthday, I took a trip to Manhattan 
And I met up with him and I got to see his life. I got to see the preschool he went to. I got to see, Hmm. we went to the library. I got to read to him while his mom went to the bathroom. And this is another moment I'll never forget. We were walking, they take the subway and we were walking and she checked in with me and she said, how has this been for you? Hmm. And the fact that she thought to check in with me and say that, you know, it was just like, you know, it's obviously very emotional because it was a huge yeah. day for me. I think that as much as you can be honest and check in with each other or your friends, your, you know, support counselor to really just talk through these feelings that come along the way. And the last thing I'll say about that is, you know, when I first started working in this area, I was very donor focused. I was very focused on how donors feel and how donors have fears and, you know, will I choose this recipient and then will they ghost me or whatever. But because, you know, at Empower, I'm working with also the recipient of embryo donation. I've learned so much about that side as well mm-hmm. and the the fears that are there, you know. So after the baby is born, my fear might be they're going to seclude themselves and not share as much well, at the same time, they are a family and they, you know, they've tried so hard to become a family and they want to feel like a family. And, you know, it might not even register like, oh, let me send a text to the donor of a cute picture or something, you know? So I guess what I'm saying is, it's just really offering grace and space on both sides, along with a good sense of communication is what I advocate for and what has got me through this and why I do what I do. It's so interesting because in so many ways, it's so different than egg or sperm donation, even though it's still in donor conception, the donor conception world, because, you know, if a young man or young girl says, I'm going to donate my eggs several times and I don't want to have children or I don't want to have children now, to them, here's this egg and they hope that they'll be a success and they'll be a nice family. But here you are in a very different situation. You already had children that were conceived at the same time as this embryo with your husband. So it's a whole different ballgame really than just than being an egg donor, I think. And so I would imagine that there would be many more potentially, and I can't speak for everyone, of course, because everybody's experience is different, but I would imagine that it, it would be so much more emotionally charged for you to be in this situation. Yes. There are some major differences between egg and sperm donation and embryo donation. And one is that most often you are electing to donate and have, you know, full genetic siblings to your own children. It's also, you know, truly altruistic donation. You don't go in, you never go into embryo donation thinking necessarily that you're going to be an embryo donor. If you've really thought things through, you might know on the front end of IVF that I may have leftover embryos at the end, but it's not like I pursued embryo donation. Right. That's a very embryo good point. Donation for me, it was an unintended consequence of IVF. So there are a lot of different, I think, feelings and emotions about the connection to also just the original intention. And it's a place that in terms of embryo donors, you know, a lot of us end up in that we never, we never thought we'd be here. I never thought it's just not something that I ever, it's not like you grow up, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? An embryo donor. (laughs) You don't know until it is. 
And some embryo donors have used uh, sperm donors or egg donors or both. But I would say that I still think it's different because they're still donating full genetic siblings to their own children. Mm -hmm. So even though, you know, that they have used donors in the past, it might not cross their mind. What if the child looks like me or looks like my partner? If there is one, it's more, what if they look like my children? Mm -hmm. What if they remind me of my children? What if, you know, I always wanted a really calm child and this child is beautiful and calm and I never got that. I mean, there's just so many things that, that donors, you know, can think about and have fears about. But one other thing I want to say is I focus a lot on feelings and emotions and fears and things like that. Absolutely. Some embryo donors feel just joy and that's okay too. If you know, this is what you want, you know, everybody has a different purpose for donation based on, you know, their own values and there's so many, how they conceptualize an embryo. Mm -hmm. But if you're listening and you thought, well, I'm an embryo donor and I never got jealous or never felt that way. Wonderful. You know, this is, this is just, you know, my path. And because, you know, I've been through some of the emotions, that's really what I advocate for. But if you mostly, if your feelings tip more towards, you know, joy and gratefulness and happiness that, you know, you were able to donate and that somebody else is raising these children, that's great too. And, you know, as you process your feelings, I would imagine you could tell me, are you feeling like it's becoming more normalized for you over time? Like as your children grow up, you're kind of getting used to the whole idea of being an embryo donor and having this child that's genetically connected to you grow up in a different household and by a different parent. And maybe this kid is going to have, you know, four Xboxes and, you know, all sorts of things that maybe <laughs> you wouldn't have with your kids. And, you know, it might be very different sort of a circumstance and your kids are going to have to manage that and, you know, maybe get mad at either one of you for that. But that's what kids do, yeah. right? So I'm assuming that you're just getting you get more used to it over time. Is that right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I was recently speaking to an embryo donor who is about to meet their recipient's child for the first time. And she was asking for advice. And so I sent her some of the stuff I had written. And I said, just know that my, my feelings back then were very raw, but I have grown so much since then. So I kind of had to share it with her with a caveat of, it won't always feel this extreme in terms of the what ifs and the fears and all of those things. So I know this is, might be a tough question and because this is a sensitive yeah. question for a lot of people and a lot of people have very strong feelings about it in both directions. So some people yes. feel it's very important to consider just like your children have decided on language like we want to be siblings. Some people, as you know, feel that their donor should be called their donor. Some people feel like they should be called the bio mom or the bio dad or sometimes the dad or the mom. And then other people say, it's up to my kids to figure out what they want to call this person. How did yes. you and your recipient land on that? When I became a donor, I felt very strongly that she should decide the language. Hmm. At the same time, I was a little bit naive. So I had 
sent out a post, I think in Facebook, for support. I had called him my biological son in this post, and I was feeling very raw and emotional. And somebody wrote me and said, well, why don't you stop calling him your son? And why don't you, you know, why don't you call him your recipient son? And I felt like so sad at the time and felt very attacked. But as time has gone on, like I understand why they said that. They had been further along in their donation, but I understand why they had said that. And so, you know, at this point, I never call him my son. And also I do differentiate between biological and genetic a little bit. So if I were to ever say my fill in the blank son or fill in the blank, uh, you know, relationship to my children, I would always choose the word genetic because she carried him. She is his biological mom Mm -hmm. because she carried him and gave birth to him. And even in cases of surrogacy, I believe the same thing. The child is the biological child of the recipient of donors. So in terms of language, I left it up to her to start. And then we started navigating it from there based on our children's needs and being respectful, of course, of that. Because as I said before, that that was our agreement from the beginning is all about listening to the children's needs, listening to how those may change over time. And as he grows, he might have a different idea and we will respect that. Again, I feel like if he has something that he would like to call me or my children down the road, we'll respect that. And we will use that language with him because I think it's more important on the recipient side to sort of define and establish that we can do whatever we want in our own household mm-hmm. and all the children, whatever they want throughout their lifetime, who knows what relationship they'll develop when they're older teens or young adults. And at that point, you know, once they're out of our homes, you know, they can call each other whatever they mm-hmm. want. And you know, that's one of the really beautiful things that has come out of this is just my curiosity of, you know, what, what relationship will they have? What relationship will they choose to have? And how will that fulfill their individual lives? Hopefully in a good way. Mm-hmm. But again, so much of this is a leap of faith. Wow. That's amazing. So we'll have to check back with you, Jen, in a few years from now and see how that all turned out and what's evolved. And I mean, this is, you know, uncharted territory in our world, right? So it's hard to know. We don't really have, you know, decades of research kind of showing how people feel about donor siblings and the donors and the relationship and the openness and all of that. So I really appreciate you uh, sharing all of this. And, you know, as we wind down, I want to make sure that our listeners can get in contact with you and with Empower with Moxie, of course, which I've mentioned before in a previous episode, because it's such a fantastic organization that they know about your new launching platform. So could you share a little bit about that? Yes, I'd love to. So at Empower with Moxie, which I'm a part of, there are three of us that are sort of co-founders and all of us are either embryo 
donors or parents via embryo donation. And at the heart of what we do is really education and support along the way. We've also recently launched a matching platform called Moxie Matching. And again, education and support being sort of the staple of what we do, but also trying to create something new that's never really been done in terms of known donors, normalizing the process along the way. We facilitate match meeting requests so that donors and recipients aren't just left on a Zoom call, you know, wondering about what to ask and what to do. We really do a lot of handholding and supporting. So it's kind of in between. It's it's very um, donor and recipient choice focus, but you know, it's safer than a Facebook and more personal than a clinic. Mm. So that sounds wonderful. So all of you check it out. And what is the website, Jen? So we are empower with moxie.com. Moxie is spelled M-O-X-I. So Uh, We're on all the social media handles and the website. And again, our newly launched matching platform is moxymatching.com. That's fantastic. It's fantastic. Well, it's wonderful that you have all taken your personal experiences and given them as gifts to so many other people who really could use building a family. I say very often, as you know, I helped to create an embryo donation program within a clinic And, you know, those days were some of the best days of my career and matching people in embryo donation is such a special experience. And I really think it's fantastic what you're doing. And I really wish you the best and want to help as much as I can and hope that we'll come back another time and have your recipient on. I know she wasn't able to make it today, but you did a beautiful job speaking for her. I hope she feels good about this podcast. And for all of you who are out there, I hope you reach out to Jen with questions because she obviously has a wealth of information. And feel free to reach out to me on my website, familybuilding.net, and subscribe to this podcast because, of course, this is how we keep going. And then you'll learn all about our upcoming episodes. So thanks so much for joining. Thank you.